Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, ecological science fiction came to Going West in 2013, with author Philip Mann discussing his novel The Disestablishment of Paradise with David Larson. Um, When I was a boy, for reasons that I do not fully understand, I really loved reading science fiction. Um, I, I still do, but I would read science fiction to the exclusion of much else. And I had a prejudice which I have never properly analysed, but it was somewhat typical of New Zealanders of the period, I think, to be prejudiced against anything that came from here. Um, I had the idea that New Zealand television was probably boring, because it was quite often boring, I expect. But I, I also had the idea that New Zealand writing was less likely to be interesting um, than the novels that I preferred to read about places very far away, um, light years, ideally. Um, And I really don't know where that came from because I had read very little New Zealand writing. It was an unfounded prejudice. Um, The... I was about to say the man who changed my mind, but that's, that's not entirely true. Uh, the, the process of discovering that New Zealand writing is its own rich, wonderful ecology was, was long and complicated, but a, a significant point along that journey for me was discovering Philip Mann, um, who is not New Zealand's only science fiction writer, but for me, he will always be New Zealand's science fiction writer. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what that might mean, what it means to you, Phil. Mm -hmm. Um, First, I'd like to read you a brief comment about science fiction from one of my personal gods, the writer Ursula Le Guin, um, who, in her introduction to uh, the Norton Book of Science Fiction, writes that literalisation of metaphor is a characterisation, is a characteristic of science fiction. She says, in teaching the craft to people new to it, I use the phrase subjunctive tension to alert them to a challenge not present in realistic fiction, the way in which the open context of science fiction brings the language alive. In a story where only what ordinarily occurs is going to occur, one can safely use such a sentence as, he was absorbed in the landscape. In a story where it is literally possible for someone to be absorbed in the landscape, this becomes a much more dangerous thing to write. And she goes on with such examples as, her eyes dropped to the floor, (laughs) he was walking on air, the chairman kept putting out feelers. (laughs) But I'm particularly fond of he was absorbed in the landscape because, have a look at that wonderful landscape behind us. That is at least a reasonably good artist's depiction of one of the scenes in the latest novel from Philip Mann. Um, And I don't know if you can tell, but that blue thing with the two elongated necks, that's a tree. 
It's a gargantuan walking tree. It is one of the more spectacular aspects of this very well worked out ecology that exists on the planet named Paradise. Well worked out ecologies are a very, very big thing in Philip Mann's books. You might call him an ecological SF writer. I sometimes do. He's many other things as well. But ecology, the logic of ecologies, the fragility of ecologies, the consequence of ignoring the fragility of ecologies is very, very large in his books, and it's very large in this one. And it's quite remarkable to me that one of the most exciting, transporting, and dangerous scenes that I have read in any novel this year um, is about pruning a tree. It's, it's a gargantuan walking tree, but, but still, the, the point remains. Um, the other way in which the phrase being absorbed into the landscape is somewhat relevant here is that for much of the last decade I was worried that Phil had been absorbed into the landscape. <laughs> <laughs> I, I arrived back in New Zealand in 1996 after a few years overseas, which was, I think, the year that the last book in your great quartet, A Land Fit for Heroes, was published, am that's I right? right? Yes, that's right. Um, and it, it appeared. Um, I never managed to get hold of a copy because I was moving around between cities and homes, and all of a sudden I found that I couldn't find a copy. It was like the book vanished without trace. And I assumed, as one does, that one of, one of my favourite writers would produce a new book in a year, two years probably, Three years was a reasonable expectation. I had young children. I wasn't really paying attention. I looked up one day and realised, oh, five years, nothing from Philip Mann. Um, I, I wonder what's happened. Um, maybe he's working on one of his other many interests. I know he's, he's very interested in the theatre. Maybe he's working for the stage. Another five years went by. I do hope he's not dead. I, I started asking people in Wellington, which was where I'm from and, and where Phil has lived for a long time, on and off, um, what's going on with Philip Mann? No one seemed to know. Um, at the start of this year, I was asked by one of the magazines I write for, so what are the big science fiction events this year, David? You're our science fiction boy. What should we cover? Are there people we should interview? What's going to happen? And I looked ahead and checked out the lists of upcoming books and said, well, you might want to do this, you might want to do that. Um, there's a new Elizabeth Knox. There's Neil Gaiman has a new novel coming out. That's exciting. Um, then I got sent, about a week after I'd given them this list, uh, the new release listings from Golantz for the next month. And I saw... I saw this. And I immediately had to contact my magazine and say, um, actually... The most exciting thing happening this year, I didn't know about. So I'm sorry about that. Um, can we interview him, please? Um, and, and so we did. Um, I cannot tell you how thrilled I was to see that Philip Mann was back. Where did you go? <laughs> hmm. I didn't go anywhere. What, it's very interesting what happened. The Lamford for Heroes, which you mentioned, um, I mean, it started off to be just one book, 
Then the editor who I had at that time just said, could I cut it into two books, which I did. The second book, however, was rather long, so he suggested, could I cut it into three, a third book? In the meantime, uh, unfortunately, he died. And, you know, you have a very close relationship with your editor and things like this. You've got to be able to trust your editor almost completely, um, both to scold you, but also to support you in the harder times. Um, Galantz was also going through an incredibly strange period. It had been unsold and unsold. And each time a publisher like that is unsold, what happens is that some of the, lift, some of the writers who have been on the list with the, with the publisher get dropped off. Now, I, in the, having published two volumes of Land Fit for Heroes, the third volume was once again split into two. Now, let me say this was completely against my desire. The fact is that if you put the two books together, you get one good, one very good, big read, but which brings the whole of the work together. And I resisted as much as I could having them chopped into two, but it's what happened. And in between them being published, Galantz was unsold again. And so the final volume, which is, I have to say, I regard as being one of my, one of my best books, virtually went straight to the remainder bin. It really, and the new editor who took over, um, I contacted her about this, and we had some conversations, but basically you could see that she had other writers that she wanted to work with, and so in a sense I just was dropped off the list. And that's a very hard thing, you know, it's a very hard thing to cope with, especially when you think you've got a really excellent book which you really believe in. A Land Fit for Heroes is a culmination of a very, very long and quite complex work. Well, I sort of absorbed it, decided I'd keep going, and I'd had for some time the idea that I wanted to write a book. Now, it's called now The Disestablishment of Paradise. It wasn't called that originally. I can't even remember what the title was originally. But I had the, I had the idea for this book. And it's an old idea, actually. I, I, it goes back to about the 1970s, um, when I used to write a lot of short stories. And I actually found the original a while back. Um, it's incomplete. And it, was, it has the one seminal detail in it, and that is a man who follows a track of footprints going into a desert. And the footprints never come back. And so he sets out to follow it, to rescue whatever is at the end of it. So I had this idea, and I decided to start to write it. And what happened was, because I didn't actually have a publisher anymore, um, I was sort of writing in a vacuum. And that was both liberating, but it was also restrictive. But liberating in the sense that I just let myself go. I think, okay, I'll just write it the way I want to write it. And we'll talk a bit more about this, I think, David, I hope. But um, the result was I ended up with a really, what I thought was a terrific book. And I contacted Galantz, and uh, they weren't interested. But what was extraordinary to me was here was I'd had this book, and I then tried to get other publishers interested. And it must have been, you know, publishing was starting to go through the most tremendous difficult times. And so I couldn't get it published there. So I thought, well, once again, I'll try and get published in New Zealand. And I couldn't get published in New Zealand. I sent it off to several publishers. I couldn't get anywhere with it. And this continued for some time. Now, let me hasten to add 
that writing science fiction is a great, writing like this is a great joy to me. It's the fulfillment of a great deal, but it is not my life. At the same time as I was not writing science fiction, I was, yes, I was working back in the theatre. I was loving it. I was directing plays again. I was travelling. I worked for two years in the Caribbean, helping people produce plays. Um, I continued a lot of other travelling. I did a lot of other kinds of writing, lots of short stories, lots of poems, so I was, and lots of gardening. So I was feeling very fulfilled, but all the time I had this book, which I was eventually, which I kept on trying to get published. Eventually, it reached a certain point in me that I thought, I'm getting obsessed by this. If the book isn't going to be published, so be it. I don't want to have it weighing on me anymore. And so I built a box. And I put the book into the box, the original manuscript, all my crossings out and little bits of writing on it and so forth, plus a hard disk, which has got the tape of it on. And I wrote a dedication to my grandchildren. And I closed the book. I sealed it with some tape, put it on my shelf, and forgot about it. Two weeks later... <laughs> I mean, this is very instructive of life, isn't it? Two weeks later... I got an extraordinary message. I'd started a web page, by the way. That was great fun. I mean, I'd love it if some of you would contact the web page. Because onto it, I've put a lot of poems, short stories, essays, things I've written over the years. Not just science fiction, a whole range of things I've put onto it. So this is like Phil Man's blog. Yeah, it is. It is in a way, yes, I suppose. Although, yes, all right. <laughs> um, sorry. No, no, no. So I, I, I got this message and... It's from a man called Malcolm Edwards. Now, Malcolm Edwards had been my very first editor with Galantz. He was the man who had picked my first manuscript um, from the slush pile. He'd read the first page, contacted me, and so I'd sent the rest of the book to him. So he'd been my first publisher. He also had edited my first four books. And he said to me, rather like you, he said, Hello, Phil, we thought you were dead. <laughs> and he, he made a joke, you know, the Mark Twain thing about sort of, you know, greater, greater exaggerated. I wrote back and said, well, nobody told me that. <laughs> we agreed to meet in London, and I met up with him. And in the course of the conversation, I said, um, Malcolm, um, he said, why haven't you been writing? So I said, well, I have a book, actually, which I'd written, and which I submitted to Galantz, and it never went anywhere. And his face changed. It was quite remarkable to see. He said, well, nobody ever told me. And there is a protocol, you know, that if somebody's been your first editor, you have that relationship. And what happens is that they then take an interest, even if they don't edit the books. And so I told him, so I said, would you mind if I resubmit it? He said, please do. So I resubmitted the book, and uh, it's quite emotional, I'm afraid. But two weeks later, I got a call. They said, we love it. <laughs> the rest is history. He took it up, and um, I found the Galantz I was now working with. Malcolm's no longer my editor. There's a new person taken over. But I did find that working with them was a brand-new experience, quite wonderful. I mean, publishing has changed greatly, but it's very, very good now. And this book then just, just went straight through the process. Now, there's a lot there I'd like to talk about. Um, I want to talk more about the disestablishment of paradise, but 
It occurs to me that Murray has thrown us the somewhat enigmatic topic in conversation on conversation. And no, stop shaking your head, Murray. There's something I want to do with it. And I was thinking about this, and it occurred to me that one of the conversations that happens in literature is the conversation between a writer's books. Um, and I was very struck reading this by the, shall we say, fruitful similarities between it and your first novel, the mm. first of your many novels, um, The Eye of the Queen. Yeah. And you've just said that those are the two books that you wrote without an editor. Those are the two books that you wrote um, in this strange space where no one is working with you. You're not at all sure of publication. Um, you're completely free. And really, I mean, they're, they're such interestingly similar books um, about contact with the alien, people going out and kind of being lost in this, in this alien place. And oh, I'm, I'm not going to belabor the similarities. But I wondered if you could tell me about the experience of writing Eye of the Queen right back when um, you were an unpublished writer and no one had ever heard of you. Um, where were you? What were you doing? How did that happen? And um, how was it like this? Mm. Well, um, it's interesting because I was talking to Mimi yesterday. <clears throat> I lived for two years in Peking. I was employed as what we used to call a polisher, an English polisher, at Xinhua Shi, that's the New China News Agency. And this was in 1978, which was just after the Cultural Revolution. And at that time, there were only about 110 foreigners working in Peking. That's how small it was. And I also was working on night shift. And I was the only foreigner actually working on night shift. So my vision, so I lived in Peking. I lived in this re remarkable situation. And for the first time in my life, I was doing a job which had a beginning and an ending. I mean, you finished work at, shall we say, five o'clock in the evening. You got a car home back to the Yui Bingguan, the Friendship Hotel, as it's called. And that was it. You couldn't go back to the office. There's no dropping down back into the theatre to do something. Nothing like that at all. But night shift, night shift was wonderful because, you know, there's a different feeling to people. When you're working at night, there's a different kind of camaraderie develops. And I would end up talking to people and having a wonderful experience of a China which I don't think many people have seen. I mean, the marks of the Cultural Revolution were all over the place. I mean, not quite literally in the sense of machine gun bullet holes in the walls and things like that. Um, the sense of the people recovering from an immense shock to their civilization, And I was there. I was witnessing it. And I had... But I had time... I had time. There's nothing else I could do. If, if, I weren't at, if I wasn't at work, I had a bicycle. I would cycle all over Peking. And I'd also had this desire... I just want to stop for a moment because I want to say something. When I talk about the alien or something like in, a, in the first book, The Eye of the Queen, incidentally, the title was created by Malcolm Edwards, my first editor. No, sir. Um, I want to emphasise that in no way was I consciously trying to equate the alien with the Chinese. <laughs> now, it's very important because that assumption's been made and it would be completely wrong. When I was writing The Eye of the Queen, I had absolutely no idea that there was a connection between my life in China and the book. It wasn't until 
oh, some years afterwards, when I ended up being invited to write an essay about this, that I, dealt, I looked at the book again. I'd never reread it. I've never reread my books ever after they've been published. I had to go back, I had to read that book, and it suddenly hit me between the eyes that what I was writing about was not the Chinese, but the experience of discovery, which I was going through at that time. Going to China, living there for two years, learning to speak some Chinese, experiencing it was like um, as if I'd been put through a dishwasher or something. I was being churned over. I was being given new experiences. I was being challenged permanently. I was looking inside myself. I was learning so much. And I, it, it was the changing point in my life, was working in China. And a lot of this, without my knowing it, was what permeated into the book. And that's what gives it, I think, its sense, that sense of veracity, is that I was actually experiencing something similar to the characters, but, if I, but I didn't know it. I didn't know it at the time, and you must really believe that. Now, I don't know how to link across to... Yes, there was one moment of discovery... I remember it very, very clearly. It was one morning. I was sitting... It was on, I was on night shift that time, so I was, I'd woken up in the morning, and I was working at my desk uh, at home in the Oibingbren, and I was looking out the window, and the, there were members of the Red Army, Red Guard. They were playing basketball. They used to do that for t hours on end in the yard. And I, I was dissatisfied with what I'd written, and I didn't know where this story was going. It seemed to me to be becoming just he said, she said kind of narrative, and it was a little bit... I thought, I wish it could make it more dynamic. What can I do? And I thought to myself, I thought, I wonder what it would be like if I could actually speak an alien language. What would it be like oh, if I could get inside the mind of an alien thing? And suddenly the thought occurred to me that why don't I write it from the point of view of the aliens as much as from the point of view of the humans. And suddenly it was like a light being turned on inside my head. Because suddenly I thought, I began to imagine the kind of broken English which one might get from someone who is only learning a language for which most of the terms don't have any meaning whatsoever. So they're adapting, they're trying to adapt their understanding between cultures. Yeah. Exactly what I was doing, but I wasn't aware of it so much. I remember jumping on my bike. I was so excited by this discovery. I thought I'm going to be able to write it from the alien point of view. Why can't I can do that? And I can I can write the documents. I was so thrilled. I jumped on my bike and I went pedaling around Yui Bing one, singing my heart out. That's the fool you are. That's the people who used to look after us. I remember them looking at me and saying, "I'm not again." But that was the start of that, and it just was a moment of absolute liberation for me, and I when, wrote the book when you very, say, very quickly. When you say, I can write the documents, expand on that. Um, to, give the to make something realistic, I think it's got to come from more than just one point of view. If I assert something, then I want the, the evidence, and the evidence is in the documents. I mean, I've done exactly the same thing with the... Um, the disestablishment of paradise. So, and I'll talk about that a bit more in a moment if you want. Um, I do want. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, shall I shut up about the first? No, no, no. <laughs> because it was it was a opening, and it was a total learning experience for me. And well, if I, if I give you a little image of what it was like for me at the time, I couldn't get any typing paper. So what I got was I got some paper which was as close as I could get it, but you could only buy it in long, 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 long rolls. So I used to put a bit in and I'd roll it so the book would be rolling up 
on the floor in front of me <laughs> as I typed. And I was typing, I'm a pretty good typist, I was typing on as fast as I could and I had no idea of where I was, but the words were just pouring out of me. It was like it turned me on. And that's really how I feel. When I'm writing really well, I'm as hot as anything. You know, you can't go wrong, actually. It's just coming out so... And I had that experience with The Eye of the Queen. And I remember finishing the book. Ah, actually, The Eye of the Queen was my third attempt at writing a book. The first one died. Now, that's a funny experience, to have a book die on you. You're going along, you think you're doing all right, and suddenly it just goes... And you just... It just won't, nothing will come. And I remember putting that to one side, thinking, oh, well, that's, you know, that's all right, I'll try another. Tried another one, even less time before it died on me. How much time? Uh, it's not, yes, it's not, not time so much as it's... The impetus to write dies. It's, nothing starts to make sense. Things fall apart. The centre will not hold from... It's... it's and it becomes impossible to continue. When you're writing well, you can't stop yourself continuing. And it wasn't until I came to write this one, The Eye of the, the, the Eye of Queen, that I was given that kind of liberation. I'd experienced it a bit before because I'd written hundreds of short stories. Many of them had been broadcast, by the way. Um, and some of them had been published. So I was very experienced in one level as a writer. I'd done, you know, masses of writing and of all different kinds. But I've never, ever, ever attempted the long-distance the long run of writing a novel. And when I was on fire, I was just unstoppable. And so the book was written... It was written, actually, in two great big chunks. And I discovered something interesting as well, and that is it doesn't matter if I stop. The writing continues in my head. And all I had to do was to go back, look at the book, read perhaps two or three sentences in it, and it came alive again. It, it's uncanny, really. The same is exactly true of this one here, when I came to write this one. Exactly the same process. You're done right. I was free. I was free to write as I wanted to. And the book was written in about four different sessions. Let me, go, let me just add something, almost tacking this onto the side. It's very important to realise that sometimes you'll talk to authors and they'll say they do a draft of a book. And I've, I've read about people who are, you know, learning about writing. They're told, oh, you do the draft first of all, then you go back and clarify the draft and so forth. That's not how I do it. And I can't work that way. What I do is I have to get the beginning right. And usually the first sentence of a novel is given to you. God knows where it comes from. It's just given to you. It's a line. It's something, it just starts you off. Then you get the second line, the third line, the fourth line. Now, for me... I get, if I get the first chapter written, it's got to be right. I cannot go ahead unless I'm absolutely certain it's everything. So I will spend a long time getting that first chapter right. Then I'll get into the second chapter. That's got to be right. And I look upon it exactly like a piece of architecture. You're establishing the foundation. Once you've got the foundation done, you can build on it. And you won't go wrong. I've very, very, very rarely in my life have I had to go back and correct the first one, two, three, four, or fifth chapters. Okay. Um, I'd like to remind you of something which I'm pretty confident you've completely forgotten, um, which is that <laughs> about 25 years ago, um, very briefly, I was your gardener. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, that's right, yes. Um, 
this was at a time when I was, uh, I'd recently graduated and I was in that messing around what shall I do next stage and uh, my then girlfriend's academic supervisor was a good friend of Phil's and said, well, I, I know someone who needs some help in his garden. Do you want to do that? I'm like, oh, might as well. Um, and what called it to mind was that you never wanted me to do more than one hour's work at a time because you said, I need to see how it looks before I can decide what you should do next. <laughs> Yes, very good, very good observation. Yes. Is, is writing like that for you? Uh, yes, it is. And it's the confidence, the confidence comes from the more you get the opening right, the deeper you are into it, the, you, can't, you can't go wrong after a while. And you're absolutely right, yes, to get that sense of looking at something, understanding it in depth, and then you can go forward. And it's the only way I can, it's the only way I can work. I was um, rereading Pioneers a little while ago. We Can't. haven't talked about it. It's um, either your third novel or your fourth because the, the second one ended up being split in two. Um, absolutely gorgeous book if you haven't read Pioneers, one of the great New Zealand novels, I think. Uh, there's just a line that caught my attention um, when the narrator, uh, who's, who's writing the story down in, in notebooks just as a way of sorting out his own thoughts, which happens frequently in your books, um, says of his partner, Ariadne is more logical than I, and can weigh up a situation in moments where I become stranded in contradiction. The price that she pays for her logic is that she is predictable. I am the one that improvises. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's, that's you, Phil, that you're yeah. the one that improvises, and that you might go slowly, um, but you don't go, you don't go places that I can predict. That's right. It's, it's, you're absolutely spot, you're, you're spot on. Well done, that's really it. <laughs> um, it's, but it's very important because if you, if, you, if you go about things slowly like this and in depth, you, you actually are able to look at two, two points of view simultaneously. You're able to hold them in your head, or three. And this is very important because it stops you ever taking sides, as it were. You've got to be objective in your novel. You've got to be able to stand back from it. There are no... There are no You've got to love your characters and in all their moods and all their shapes and forms, I find. And I can do that if I'm able to sort of stand back and let myself consider the totality of the work. In Pioneers, I'm glad you mentioned that, it's, it, it's one of my very favourite books and it's the only one which I've sat down, I can say that I started writing it on Christmas Day and I finished it about three or four months later. Can you imagine that? I start on Christmas Day. I start writing a novel for God's sake. I mean, um, so kind of like a gift. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it just flowed from me. And I was very conscious of what you've mentioned. I'm very conscious that, yes, yeah, I can improvise. Phil, I just said that you worked slowly. You did that in three or four months? Yes. Yeah. Well, for... Perhaps I'm exaggerating that. Perhaps it was a bit longer than that. But it certainly, it came as one flow. Huh. And, I mean, it's once again a very good instance of the book that although I get the foundation right, I don't know what's going to happen. I usually have a knowledge of the ending. I know what I'm going for. I've got a, a sort of a hazy idea of it. But the journey of the book is getting there. And as you move forward, new things happen, new characters come in, new shapes occur. You're going slowly and working your way through until about a point occurs... 
about, um, well, if I say 100 pages, and it's something like that, so it's enough work has gone into the book to make it significant, then suddenly the journey gets easier. And the parameters you're working within, you've got the foundation down, you've got everything moving, and then you can start to move quickly. And then the ending, usually the endings start to come really quickly for me. You know, then the writing becomes a real joy. But there can be a sense in which I don't know, I don't know necessarily what's going to happen in the next, next pages. I've sometimes been quite astonished. I've gone to bed after writing, woke up in the morning, thought, what did I do yesterday? What did I write yesterday? I can't remember. It's not that I've gone doolally or something like that. I think it's almost, you can get into a sort of almost like, if I use the word trance, I don't want to put too much gloss on that word, but it's like that. And I need to just then read it again and think, ah, oh, that's what I wrote about. And then it comes back again, it starts off again. And you can follow it. Um, I, th I think, can I just interject something? I think I've been I'm very, very lucky about that because it means that even if months go by without writing something, I can be back into it like that. I don't, I don't have any problems. I'm, I can get back in the mood, the feel of something. And there's one instance, I remember this proven to me, and my daughter used to come and she used to see me tapping away. I'd be tapping on the typewriter and she'd come in, she'd climb underneath my desk up here and the little head would pop up here, you see, so scramble up onto my knee. What are you doing, Dad, she'd say. So I said, I'm writing a book. Oh, really? Is that what it is? Can I write a book, she'd say. So I said, yeah, you can write a book. And I'd take the page out, put another page in for her. And she'd go <laughs> on the typewriter. And in those days, it was all, you know, sit from big typewriter. So all the keys would go into a bunch like that. And I'd pull them apart. And so she'd say, so I'd say, oh, you've written a book. And she said, what do I say? So I'd say to her, well, oh, it says, once upon a time, there was a little girl who lived in a house in a deep, dark forest. And I'd see her eyes. You know, that wonderful way a child's eyes glaze over when the imagination has come alive and taken over. She'd do that and she'd take the page for this. She'd written a book. <laughs> and she did that and went out. And I remember sitting there and thinking, put my page back in, read a page, and it was back on. It was quite lovely. I just, like, just like sinking back into the novel the world of the novel, which was so, so real. And th this, this then applies to this one here. This, became, this world became tangible. If, if anyone wants to know how you get to it, yes, it's through the New Zealand bush. Undoubtedly, one of the most spectacular places I've ever experienced in my life, walking and smelling the New Zealand bush. But also the paintings of someone like Duanier Rousseau. Um, I, I come from a family... The mainly artistic side of my family is in painting, and draw, in drawing, sketching, and painting, and sculpture. And um, so I, I grew up with, with you know, discussions about art and looking at things like that. And I remember being fascinated by Rousseau's pictures, which are of dense jungle, perhaps with just a figure looking out at you, or that famous one with the person with the flute. That's the world, that's the world I was inhabiting in this book, and, and loving it, yes. Okay. Sorry, that was a digression. I don't think it was. I think that might have been core subject. But um, mm. I, I want to ask two specific questions about the details of how you create these stories and these worlds because you're making it sound easy and I suspect that you're putting an awful lot of preparatory work into it and also an awful lot of, you know, syllable by syllable work into finding the right weight, the right flow, yeah. and the right words. So I want to ask you first about just one word, 
Um, I've argued with this about my children who are here in the audience, but they don't have microphones, so they don't get to argue back this time. Ha ha. Um, they claim that they've run across this word quite often. I think the reason they've run across, across it quite often is that I picked it up from you and I've fallen into the habit of using it. I had never met this word before I met it in um, all of the families. It's the word deliquesce. The word? Deliquesce. Yes. Such yes. a beautiful, beautiful yes. word. Yes. It's, it's an alien creature dying and its, its internal structure dissolves and Phil writes and, and he deliquesced. And as soon as I read that sentence, I could absolutely see what I was reading. It was like I was looking at it. It was like I was there. I mean, that's, that's poetry. That's choosing the right word. And it is so, so important in science fiction. Um, if you say, um, if you talk about a tree falling on someone and crushing them, you're describing something terrible, but it's within the realm of ordinary experience. Um, all sorts of sentences will do that job. If you're talking about a creature that no one has ever seen, dying a death um, that no one has ever seen, you have to find the right words because it is the words that create the event. Um, Good point. How did you find that word? How, did you, how did you find that image? It's, it's, the, it's the visual side once again. It's the ability to be able to sort of visualise what one's writing about. It's, it, I, I analysed myself once as I was typing... I'd be looking here at the page occasionally, but I found that I often would look here, and I'd be looking there, and I would be... To, if you were to say I was seeing it, that would be putting, making it too concrete. It's not that, but yet it is that. I'm seeing something in the mind there, and if you're seeing it, then you're describing it or writing about it like that. And the word... The, I know exactly what you mean about that word. It is the... It is the in this case, it's the movement from one state into another state by a natural process, which is going through. And that's exactly what I was seeing. Like in the book when Mac dies, finally. He doesn't die, actually. He never dies. Mac, he's, one of two main characters. We know from the start of the book that he's going to die. This is not a spoiler. Go on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he, he is absorbed into the, into the planet, into the world. Into the landscape. <laughs> and the deliquest he, he enters the it's, it's a movement into the essence of something else you're losing your own sense of form but the deep reality of whatever it is moves into another dimension as it were that's that's more or less what I'm driving at do you describe him as deliquescing as well? well it's what happens I don't think I use the word, but it, not in this case, but it's a similar sort of thing. It's, it, you're right, it's a, it's a, it's a common th sort of vision in my, in my work is the movement from one state into another state, which is not necessarily worse, but is decidedly different. So what you're saying, basically, if I'm understanding you, is that you have a somewhat visual apprehension of the story, maybe not quite literally, and the writing process partly consists of finding the right words to describe something that's already there. Absolutely right. Okay. Spot on, spot on, yeah. Okay, but then. I do, I do have, um, in the case of um, a book such as uh, Wolf's Yarn, which we've not mentioned, Wolf's Yarn began as a dream, a waking dream, which was so vivid. I, in, well, I was living in China, it was, um, that it stayed with me, and I never knew it was going to become a book, and then uh, after a period of time it actually began to dominate my mind. 
And it was a dream which I'd had about a sort of spaceship or something like that. I wasn't sure what it was. It was being lifted up by a creature like that. And I knew that in order for this to escape, it had to go through and therefore destroy this other creature, which was incredibly beautiful. So you have the two things happening simultaneously. You have the destruction of something beautiful and wonderful, but you have the salvation of something else. That kind of paradox is so strong and so powerful that it led to the writing of an entire novel. I'll, I'll talk about Walshaw a bit more. Well, we've done enough time probably, but it's, that's a strange book. That really is strange. Well, actually, um, there's something that you wrote at the beginning of that novel. Ah. One of your books is strange. That's why I like them. Um, the subject of this biography is the man, John Wilberforce. However, in writing about him, I find that I also have been present in the book. And I was, I was going to quote that as a way of asking you about the way all your narrators are present in the book, very nearly, with a couple of exceptions. You put the people who are writing the story into the story. The, the mechanism of the book coming into existence becomes part of the book. Right. Yes. Um, but I am also struck by the fact that, from the, from the sound of it, with Eye of the Queen and your Chinese experience, you also are present in the book. Yes. Um, I'm not aware of my own presence in the books. Um, I set out very deliberately, when I, when I knew that I wanted to continue writing novels like this, I decided I was not going to write all the same kind of book. I very consciously decided if I'd written The Eye of the Queen, first of all, that I would write something completely different. So this led me to The Fall of the Families and the Master of Paxwax. And then I wanted to write something completely different, so I came to Pioneers. So very intellectual science fiction about contact with the alien, followed by a grand space opera about the fall of a human dynasty um, as a result of a conspiracy of aliens moving against it. And Pioneers, golly. Yes, that's strange. Describe Pioneers. <laughs> It just, just came. And different, pioneer, different and good. Yeah. After Pioneer, something like Wolfsjahn. Um, if I can just spend... Hmm. Wolfsjahn is a Greek tragedy, basically, would you say? Greek tragedy? Yeah. yeah. It's about a man destroyed by his fatal flaw. It's exactly yes, a Greek tragedy. And, I mean, you've, you, it's touched upon something very, very deep there. Um, when, I, when I was a little boy... Um, my, f my father was killed before I was born and I was brought up in um, we, we were quite a poor family in any ways but I was just brought up by my mother, my mother and she was fascinated by Greek mythology and so from the word go I remember the stories I was told when I was a child were from Greek mythology and some of this carried over because when I began to work in the theatre I did find I just absolutely if I put it this way, I'll say I relish tragedy. I loved Greek tragedy. And I'm very conscious of the fact that that sometimes has, that has influenced me. You're absolutely right. Very deeply. And it's because tragedy ultimately is very positive because it's telling the truth of something. It's like it's not holding any veils back. It's revealing things for you. And I desperately wanted my writing to be like that. It's quite interesting that quite often science fiction gets dismissed, really, as being you know, just, just fanciful and fair. not at all. It's a way of us getting sometimes at the deeper realities which you can't express otherwise. That's how I find it anyhow. So Greek, Greek tragedy and the idea of, of is, is deep in me. 
Um, but it doesn't mean necessarily the books are tragic. I think Wolfsjahn is, though. Wolfsjahn is a, is a tragic book. Would you describe Disestablishment of Paradise as tragic? Not in the slightest. Somebody's, somebody, one critic, actually accused me of writing a dystopia. Nothing like that at all. Not at all. It's a, vin it's a, it's a vindication of love. Now, not necessarily everything ending up people happy. Love doesn't necessarily lead to happiness, but it can lead to a fortitude and a sense of certainty. And what happens in this book here is that one of the most mysterious creatures ever to exist, the dendron, this creature in here, which has got immense psychic power, is saved from destruction. There's a moment in the book where Hera, the, character, the lead character, describes this as the one, the only, the never ever to be repeated in the whole of the galaxy, the whole of the universe. There could never ever be another creature like this and we can save it. So it's got that dimension to it. So it's the last of its kind and it's of a species that normally would require two members in order to reproduce, which is common enough, but also it is capable of reproducing on its own if it's helped and there are humans present and this is at a time when humanity has pretty much wrecked this planet but it's not our planet, it's another planet which has an ecology capable of some level of conscious awareness that is in the process of throwing humans off the planet. So the last two humans on the planet encounter the last dendron and this is pretty much the, the core episode of the book. That's right. And they do, they do, they do save Hera and Mac. Incidentally, it came as a big surprise to me when I'd finished writing it. I looked at it and thought, there's all the characters in this book are women. Now, that wasn't planned, that wasn't intended, it's what happened, but except for one. And he's not a very ordinary sort of man, he's a very mystical, mysterious man, very much a he-man. He's a leader of a construction company but he depends upon his pendulum for making decisions, and he's got a very otherworldly sort of vision of life, I think. So he's not, he's not quite an ordinary man. But all the other characters are women, and that, that, that fascinated me. I thought, you know, because sometimes I've been accused of writing... Some, once I was accused of writing my books were too male-orientated, and now here's one... Are there any women in this? Yes, there's no, no women in that book at all, they're right. So it was a big journey, I suppose, once we know. <laughs> but can I just go back to, back to the uh, disestablishment of paradise for a moment? So halfway through the book, we come to a junction in which they've saved the dendron, and these are the only two people who are alive on this whole planet. The planet is going mad. The planet is roguing, as we say. And what happens is they fall in love. And so the second part of the book is entirely about the realisation of their love, and neither of them are very, very adept at it. She's about in her 50s and has never, ever had a satisfactory sexual or loving relationship with a man, nor has he. He's had many women, but he's not had love. And so the rest of the book's about the coming together like that. And then the tragedy occurs, and that is that they're not able to stay together. They're not rescued together. You said that. it wasn't a tragedy. One is rescued, and the other one has <laughs> but they're alive. And it's, there's no, it is not tragic, it's an affirmation. And yeah, that was I why I was I asking When you. I finished it, I remember feeling... I had a feeling which I've often had when I finished a book, and it's, I'll try to describe it to you. 
my mind goes blank, goes black in one sense. There's no thought, it's blank. It's as if I had a balloon instead of a head. I can't think, I'm empty. And I remember feeling that, and I typed the final phrase. I knew exactly, by the way, I knew the final line of the book when I was about halfway through it. I knew what I was heading towards, because you know, I knew what I was doing by then. And um, this was accomplished, the disestablishment of paradise. And it's totally ironic, because paradise has been liberated itself, you know, in this case. And I remember just sitting back and thinking, I've done it. I've bloody done it. <laughs> But my mind was empty. And I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier. I, I do depend totally upon things like reading, upon conversations with friends, upon walking in the bush or sitting looking at the sea. This is what I find feeds me as a writer. And for the rest, it's responding to whatever is going on about us. I don't set out to write necessarily an ecological book. The book is ecological because that's what matters to me. I may not necessarily realise it, but that will become the core issues within a, book, within a book like this. So it's not, I'm not preaching. I never ever want to seem to preach. I, I hate it. But I do want to evoke a sensation in the reader which allows them to see things and understand and feel things the same way that perhaps I do. Phil, we're running out of time. I'm annoyed to realise that I've still got about half my questions unasked. However... Um, would anybody else like to ask a question? Is it on? Yes. Just wanted to ask you, um, Philip, if you apply your same um, uh, system to writing your short stories? Here's an experiment for you, which, uh, which is what I do for myself. I might give myself a title and let the title rest in my mind and a story will come. And so it's embroidery around an idea, like in that sense. Um, and the, the right I'll, with a short story I probably will know pretty well what I want to say at the ending so it's more for the journey is then finding my way to that ending but it's, it, need, it, it just needs a seed to start off with and, and yes in the sense that of getting the thing getting the beginning right exactly that I do the same with the short stories but it's easier. Well, short stories are not necessarily easier to write, but they, 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 have a be they have an easier beginning and an end because they're not so long. as they, I mean, this, this is a massive people. Um, but the same principle applies here. Get the beginning right, and the story will start to unfold. And it'll, the depth will occur. Anyone else? Do you want to read that chapter, do you think? I don't think we're going to have time. No. Hi, this is a question for both of you, I think. Um, in what sense is Philip's writing New Zealand writing? It's an excellent question. Um, Philip's a New Zealander. <laughs> that would actually be my answer, I think. I tend to think there is not such a thing as New Zealand writing, um, except that it's writing done by New Zealanders. It can be whatever it bloody likes. Um, and I, I think that's quite an important point to make. When people say this isn't a New Zealand book, it's set in the south of France, you know, nonsense. It's where, where, sorry, where was the question from? All right, yes, oh, thank you. Yes. Sorry, I didn't see where the question came from. I, um, I, I just wanted to say, I think you've partly alluded to this, so it's a kind of feed question, really. <laughs> when, you were talking, when you were talking about the bush. Yes. Um, 
I think if I'd been published in New Zealand, I don't think the question would arise. I think people would know I was a New Zealand writer. You know, I, don't, I think that, that would happen automatically. You're often broadcast in New Zealand. I mean, your yes, stories are on yeah, national radio yeah, very often. Yeah. But it's because of being published in London and so forth that, and I mean, that's an interesting thing because I'm not there to publicise the books. I'm not there to talk about them. I mean, this is the first time I've actually sat on a podium and talked about my writing. You're kidding me. No. Uh, I think I gave, I gave a, a talk once on something, but nothing like this, a kind of interesting exchange, or having someone sort of an interlocutor like yourself sort of helping me along. Um, That's moderately outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, but I mean, I feel it as a New Zealander. I mean, I, I can't... T we were talking, some of the people were talking about the tramping, you know, which we had yesterday, one thing. We were talking about it. And I could, I, the feeling for the, for the nature of New Zealand is so strong, as far as I'm concerned, so, so really powerful. Um, I do worry about the future, I must admit, of what we're doing in this country. I mean, we talk about a clean, green image. I wish to God that is what we just went for with the, every ounce of our energy because it makes us very unique in the world. But I, I want my, my books are not written to a, to a programme, but they do involve issues which are serious, because I think probably I'm a very serious-minded person when it comes <laughs> down to it. Mary, do we have time for another question? Do we have another question? In so many ways, it is a very complicated book. Am I right that it's complicated? Because, yes. like, for example, like the dendron, you know, you had the scene when Hera felt herself being sexually um, taken over and that she knew it was the dendron wanting to reproduce and that she got the message that it needed help. And, and that intrigued me a bit. Um, the thing is that in the book, the dendron... Is a, is a living example of, if you want, procreation, love, sexual energy. It pours out of it on a psychic level, which is why any of the people who arrive on paradise, this planet called paradise, don't put too much weight on the word paradise. It's just what people called it, like they say, oh, it's a paradise island. So what happens is that the, the dendron is the essence of that, and people, psychically we pick up on it. And she, being the only woman there, she's fallen in love with paradise to the extent of almost embarrassing herself by wanting to lie down on the ground with her arms spread, not, I mean, a kind of sexual fulfilment, if you like. But what is happening, yes, there's one dendron left, and it needs now to separate and yes, she's feeling that very acutely because she has entered the psychosphere, which is a new word as well, I think, that I can, the psychosphere of the planet. I use the word psychosphere in my very first book. I use it here as well. And it's the, it's the, it's the emanation within a world of the, tr of the life spirit within that world. I mean, you can ask yourself a question, say, what's the life spirit of, of the earth as we have it at present? What messages are we perhaps sending out into deeper outer space? Well, in the case of paradise, it is a terrific vitality and a joyfulness in life, in living, in procreation, in moving on, in forward-looking. And paradise, in the book, spreads its energy carelessly almost throughout the whole of the universe. Now, you don't know this till you come to the end of the book. But that's what Hera's feeling. And that's why 
in an, in an undiluted form she experiences when she first encounters the dendron. It's a hell of a strange thing to write about, I might tell you. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear. It's a strange thing to read about. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I, think, I think we've come to the, to the end of that. I must admit I'm rather humbled that we're the first people to have you at a festival talking about your books after 40 years of, of, of writing. I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, as, as David was, that this never happened before. I mean, what do the literary festivals do in the rest of the world? Anyway, we won't go into that. Thank you very much for your time. That was an enlightening and absolutely engrossing conversation between two people who uh, respect each other's ideas and thoughts. And David, thank you very much. Can I, um, can I just also, just before, I'm, I'd just like to thank you, David, for what I think are exceptionally uh, perceptive questions. It's, it's wonderful, wonderful to be asked that. I'd like to thank you as well for inviting me. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> this has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.